you've got your Bible with you, I want to invite you to find the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. The, uh, the scripture passage we're going to um, use as the basis for the sermon today is um, Luke 11, verses 14 to 32. Well, this is a long passage, isn't it? One good question to ask is, all right, we read this huge passage of scripture, what holds it all together? Why, why is this the the chunk that we take? Like, is there one unifying concept that holds it all together? Maybe you noticed as we read it what that unifying concept is. We see here that the whole passage holds together by this theme of the desire to see a sign from Jesus. It's mentioned at the beginning in verse 16, and then it's mentioned again in verse 29. People want to see a sign from him. And that's the idea that we're going to limit ourselves to this morning. There's lots of other ideas, lots of other things presented to us in this passage, some of them that are very hard to understand. We're going to set all those things aside. Isn't that convenient? We're going to set all those things aside for future study and just limit ourselves this morning to this idea of being skeptical about Jesus and wanting to see a sign from him. One of the things that we can really appreciate about the New Testament is that we get to see Jesus deal with the whole spectrum of public opinion about him. We get to see him deal with people that are really friendly to him and believe in him. That's, that's what we did last week. The passage we studied last week was Jesus interacting with his disciples, the ones who love him, the ones who believe in him. They wanted, to, they wanted to see something from him. They wanted something from him too. They wanted to be taught how to pray. And we got to watch Jesus deal with this group that we could call believers. Okay? Today's a little bit different. We have something that's just as intriguing and just as helpful, but it's different. We get to see Jesus deal with a different group of people, people who don't yet believe in him, people who are skeptical when they look at him. They're skeptical of his claims and his ministry, and for shorthand, we could just call them unbelievers. And you, you might actually identify more so with this group that we're talking about today rather than the group we talked about last week. Maybe you would put yourself in this category, in the skeptical camp. You maybe are not presently committed to him, have not believed in him, have not committed your life to him. You have not submitted your life and practice to him. Maybe it could even be said of you that you're an admirer, admirer, but not a follower. And Jesus is actually going to address that condition. If you put yourself anywhere in this camp, the, the skeptic camp, I hope that you especially benefit from what Jesus teaches here today and what he says. I think there's something for everyone here, even if you have committed your life to Jesus But I think there will be something here especially for you who are skeptical because you get to see Jesus interact with people who are skeptical. And you get to hear what he says to people who are skeptical. You may identify with some of the same questions that that they have and the desires that they have, the things that they want to see from him. They have certain things that they want from him. 
they encounter Jesus and they have certain things that they want from him. And we can identify at least three of those things. And you may, may be able to identify with one of them, maybe, maybe all three. Let's list the things that they want and then let's notice where they appear in the text. We first of all see that having witnessed Jesus cast the demon out of the man, there is first this group that wants alternative explanations. That's the first thing that we see people want. They want alternative explanations. That's verses 14 to 23. Rather than seeing the power of God at work, right, they observe Jesus do this miracle, exhibit this power. He casts the demon out of the man. The man's able to speak again, formerly mute. Now he can talk. Rather than see the power of God at work in that, they propose instead that Jesus is able to cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. The name Beelzebul probably refers to an ancient Philistine god. Supposedly the the god of the city, Ekron. You know how the Baals were worshipped by the people of Canaan. We We can see that word, Baal, present in a different form in the, in the title, Beelzebul. This particular Canaanite god is Baal-zebul, which interestingly translates probably as Lord of the Flies. Isn't that interesting? We know that, that term from William Golding's famous novel, in any case, what we see in verse 15 is the spectacle of people suggesting that Jesus is able to cast out demons because he himself is empowered by a demon. Allegedly, the reason that he is able to cast out lesser demons is because he is indwelt by a greater demon who is demonstrating his power over the lesser demons by casting them out. And um, we're in Luke's gospel. Luke does not attribute this suggestion to the Pharisees, but Matthew, in his account, does. Matthew lets us know that they're the ones, the religious leaders were the ones who were making this suggestion, putting forward this claim, which, of course, is a ridiculous claim. As Jesus points out in the verses that follow, if he casts out demons by the power of a demon it means that satan is at war with himself and that doesn't make any sense does it that is not a strategy for success every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste jesus says And a divided household falls. It makes no sense to suggest that Satan would use his power to cast out Satan. That's a ridiculous claim. But it's the only one available to people who do not want to admit the authority of Jesus. They don't want to admit that Jesus acts by the power of God, the Israelite God, the God that they claim to worship, Yahweh. What would admitting that truth mean for them? What if they were to admit that truth, that he is the anointed of God? Well, it would mean that they would have to believe in him as the anointed of God, and they would have to submit to his word. And that's about the last thing that they want to do. 
And so they propose alternative explanations for what they see, even ridiculous ones. What about you? Are you seeking an alternative explanation for what the Bible presents as true about Jesus? Specifically, have you proposed an alternative explanation for the empty tomb of Jesus? Have you proposed an explanation for the empty tomb that does not include resurrection from the dead? What explanation do you propose? Do you propose that he didn't actually die? Do you propose that the Roman executioners were so irresponsible in their duty that they allowed a man who was still alive to be taken down from the cross and carried away by his friends? Do you propose that his disciples stole his body from the tomb? The same ones who, after the crucifixion, were were hiding in a room with the door locked because they were afraid of the Jews. That, That group. Do you propose that the disciples stole his body and then perpetuated a lie about Jesus being raised from the dead, even though they knew that it was false? And some of them were even willing to be martyred, some by crucifixion, for that lie. If you think that that's a plausible scenario, just add this to your thinking. I want to invite you to to think about one thing further about Jesus' leading disciple, Simon Peter. If you think that the disciple stole his body and then perpetuated, perpetuated the lie... Think about how Simon Peter, the leader among Jesus' disciples, was so discouraged and so at loose ends following the death of Jesus that he wanted to go back to his trade of fishing and actually did go back. And that was after he'd seen Jesus raised from the dead. He thought about giving up on the whole endeavor and briefly did, even knowing that Jesus was alive again. He wanted to quit after he saw him alive. Now, if he felt like cashing in his chips after having been face-to-face with the risen Jesus, do you really think he would have been all in to spend the rest of his life preaching a risen Jesus, knowing very well that it was all a fraud. Peter had to have seen the risen Jesus in order to spend the rest of his life in service to him. He barely allowed himself to be brought back into service after he did see him alive. You know, I'm sure that the Pharisees did not see their alternative explanation for the exorcism as ridiculous. I'm sure that they thought 
It was plausible. Jesus exposed it as being ridiculous. I'm sure that you don't feel like your alternative explanation for Jesus' miracles or for the resurrection is ridiculous. But are you sure? Are you sure that you're not proposing something ridiculous? Have you thought about it? See, that's the avenue that Jesus takes these people down. He stands there with them and talks about their alternative, alternative explanation and shows them. Have you really thought about it? Think about what this means. And he exposes it as being a ridiculous explanation. And so that's what I want to invite you to do on the basis of this passage is allow Jesus to take you down the same path and ask yourself, have I really, really thought about what I'm proposing as the alternative explanation for the empty tomb and what exactly that would mean? If there really is a God, is there anything impossible for God? What would you expect him to do to show his unique and limitless power? Well, that's one thing that we see people want is alternative explanations. Maybe you can identify with that. There's two others here. We'll deal with them more quickly than we did the first one. We see people want alternative explanations for what they see happening. The second thing we see is that they want something additional. That's what we see both in verse 16 and then in verse 29. That is, they, they want to see something more from Jesus. They want to see a sign from heaven. Verse 16, verse 29. Okay, so by this time in Jesus' ministry, at this point, he, he has cast out demons. He has healed people of all kinds of uh, diseases, sickness, illness, leprosy. He's healed people. He has fed a huge crowd, a crowd of more than 5,000 with only a few loaves of bread and two fish. He's done all of this publicly, not in some quiet, out-of-the-way corner. All of it's been done in broad daylight in front of the masses. He's just cast out a demon, and in spite of all of these things, people are still asking for more. They want to see a sign from heaven. And so I want to ask you, I want to put the question to you, is that a desire that you can identify with? The desire to see a a stupendous, decisive, confirming sign from God to let you know for sure that he is there and that Jesus is his anointed son and must be believed in spite of everything that the Bible presents and everything that you see around you in the world. Are you still asking for that one more decisive piece of evidence? Okay, and one more question for you. Pause for a moment and ask yourself the question, what would it take for me? What sign could I see from God that would seal it for me? What would that be for you? What would you require? Maybe asking God to heal someone that you love and then seeing it happen. 
Maybe that's what it would be for you. Some of you might have been thinking, well, um, I'm fine with that old message in the sky thing. That would do it for me. Dear Matt, I am here. Love God. Maybe a physical appearance by God. What would be that confirming sign for you? Well, we'd all have different criteria, wouldn't we? What would be confirming for one person wouldn't be confirming for another. And what might seal it for me, you would look at that thing and just chalk that up to nature or coincidence or just dumb luck. We'd all have different criteria for what we would want to see from God. Do you feel like, in, in, your, in your heart, do you feel like God just hasn't done enough? He hasn't done enough to prove himself. Are you waiting for that one more big confirming thing? Jesus is going to address this desire in particular at the end of the passage. So we're going to leave it here for a moment, okay? This desire to see a big sign from heaven. We're going to leave it right there, just noticing that this was a desire of many people in those days and something that many of us may still want. More proof. Give me a sign, please. So there are two things that we're likely to want. We may want an alternative explanation, to what the Bible presents is true about Jesus. We may want an additional sign. The last thing we see that people want from him, this is verses 27 and 28, is we're very likely to want admiration without submission. So we've got alternative explanations, something additional. We want admiration without submission. That's verses 27 and 28. There is this segment of the population that's represented by this woman, this woman that cries out. There's this segment of the population. There was then, there is now. This segment of the population that wants to speak well of Jesus but not submit to him. And maybe you are in that category. You're not necessarily anti-God or anti-Jesus. On the contrary, you speak well of Jesus, generally. You are seeking to know God in some way. You get along with Christians. You have no great objections. You even find yourself saying things that sound religious sometimes. You are an admirer of Jesus in many respects, you can give a, an okay and you sign off on his teaching and his example and his love. You speak well of them, but there is no conscious, decisive, self-denying commitment to him and to him alone. That's the case for the woman we meet in verses 27 and 28. She's an admirer of Jesus. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Those are words almost indistinguishable from the words of someone with true faith. We can see ourselves saying that about Jesus. Yes, blessed are all those things. Isn't he wonderful? Blessed is, is your mother. But Jesus' response to her is telling. And it's the basis on which we say that something is lacking in her response to Jesus. 
Jesus says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. More important than admiration is submission. If you stop at admiration of him by Jesus' own testimony, that is not enough. That is not a condition that is blessed. Blessed rather, he says, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's submission. And so I say to you that it is not enough to speak well of Jesus. You must repent and believe in him and obey him. The wonderful and yet really hard thing about Jesus is that the words of invitation that he used to people like you and me, the words of invitation that he used were, follow me. Okay? I want you to think about the wonderful nature of follow me and the really hard nature of follow me. Follow me is wonderful because it means we get to be with Jesus. Follow me is really hard because you know what that means? It means decision. It means in the moment commitment and decision. You either follow or you don't. Following is not done by degrees, at least in the physical sense. He left people when he encountered them with a yes or a no, and it had to be demonstrated in real time. He said, follow me. Not consider this, not think this over, not meditate on this. He called for an immediate decision. It is not enough to be an admirer in response to Jesus. You are right now either saying yes or no. You are either following, submitting, believing, or you are not. There's no third category of those who are pretty good and generally speak well of Christ. His invitation is, follow me. We might want other categories to exist. We might want all kinds of other things to be true about our interactions with Jesus of Nazareth. We see all those kind of things come out in this passage, what we want to be true, what we want to see from him. Alternative explanations, something additional, or we want admiration without submission. We could call all of these things deflective responses to Jesus. We could put them all under that banner, deflective responses. They shield us from having to admit that he is a greater authority and that we must submit to him because that's the last thing that we want to do. We humans don't want to submit to a higher authority than ourselves. We want to define our own truth. We want to do our own thing, live by our own creed, not his, and so we make deflective responses to him. And so I put it to you. Are you making a deflective response to Jesus of Nazareth? And if so, are you blaming God for your deflective response? Are you charging God with not having done enough? 
to earn your trust. Maybe God didn't heal the person that you wanted to see healed. Maybe he didn't give the thing that you asked him to give. Whatever the case, he has not demonstrated in time and space, in your estimation, enough for you to believe in him. And you may have taken yourself off the hook by saying, it's God who has not done enough to prove himself to me. And what I want to submit to you and call your attention to is that at the end of this account, Jesus puts you squarely back on the hook. If you've taken yourself off, understand that he puts us all squarely back on the hook and puts the ball in our court. We have all these things that we want to see from him, all these desires and demands. You've got your list, I've got mine. And in this last segment that starts in verse 29 and runs through verse 32, the very end, Jesus simply talks about the one thing that he gives. One thing. So if you're in a position of someone who has been wanting more from God in order to believe, if you're clinging to alternative explanations, waiting for another sign, if you're an admirer but not a follower, I invite you to pay close attention because what he says will give definition and shape to the rest of your life. So let's notice at the end what we're given by Jesus. We talked about what we want. Let's notice what we're given. He begins by saying that this generation is an evil generation. Here's what you have to know about that. The generation that he's talking to, so the actual people that he's talking to at that point when he says those words, he's not just saying to them that their particular generation, that 20, 25-year period, he's not saying your particular generation is evil. They weren't evil because they're the ones that killed him. They were not uniquely evil because they're the ones who put him to death. Notice his reason for calling them evil. It's not because they're going to kill him. They're evil, according to verse 29, because they're seeking a sign. This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. The evil lies in not believing God. In seeking something else. Something Additional, giving alternative explanations, not obeying, deflecting, denying, substituting, rationalizing. We do everything except believe and obey. That's the evil. So Jesus' words apply to us too. We are a part of that evil generation that does not believe God and doesn't want to believe God. This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. We want lots of things from Jesus. Jesus says one thing will be given. That one thing is the sign of Jonah. Really intriguing, isn't it? Okay, three things about the sign of Jonah, and then we're done. This is the one thing we get. First of all, the nature of the sign. This is verses 29 to 30. 
we want to understand the nature of the sign. What exactly is the sign of Jonah? The scholarship on this is not unanimous. And we might think that it would be because it seems pretty clear. But the scholarship is not unanimous on what the sign of Jonah is. But in my view, by far the most likely thing, the most likely meaning, is that Jesus refers to his physical resurrection from the dead. I think that view has by far the most to commend itself to us, especially when we take into account Matthew's version of this same account. When Jesus says these words in Matthew, this is Matthew 12, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So in Matthew's account, Jesus gives a fuller explanation of what he means by the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Jonah came forth from a place of death after three days. He came forth from a place that he had no business coming forth from. Who lives through a three-day ordeal inside of a fish? Who survives that? Jonah wasn't the only prophet who preached. He wasn't the only prophet who called people to repentance. All of the prophets did that. But he was the only one who spent three days in a place of death and came out alive. And when Jesus says that this generation will be given the sign of Jonah, he doesn't mean this generation will get a preacher or someone to preach repentance, even though we do get that. He means that the Son of Man, he himself, is going to come forth from a place of death after three days. That's the sign of Jonah, physical resurrection from the place of death. Only Jesus' demonstration will be greater than that of Jonah. Because Jonah didn't actually die. Jesus will die, and he will be resurrected from the dead after three days. That's the nature of the sign. Physical resurrection from the dead. I want you to know, friend, that this is the sign that our generation has received the generation of people who do not believe God have received one sign. It's the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And it is on the basis of this sign that God has given, raising Jesus from the dead, that we are all called to repent and confess our unbelief to God and turn to God for the forgiveness of sins. It is significant within the New Testament that whether someone is preaching to Jews like Peter in Acts 2 or whether someone is preaching to Gentiles like Paul in Acts 17, the basis that they both give for belief in what God has spoken is the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Both categories. All peoples. They do not say turn to God because it will be good for you 
When they're preaching to people just like you and me, they don't say, turn to God because he wants to bless you. They don't say, turn to God because he wants you to live your best life now. They don't say, turn to God because you'll be happy or turn to God because you'll have peace and wholeness. That's not the basis on which they make their appeal. They don't appeal to anything internal in us. They appeal to the historical reality that God raised Jesus from the dead after three days. That's the basis of their appeal. That's Paul at Mars Hill in Greece. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's the sign that you have to deal with. That's the point that you have to probe more carefully. It's the one thing that you must make certain that you have dealt with accurately. Was Jesus raised from the dead or not? And if not, this is all meaningless. We can all go home. It's not my words, Paul's words. It's all vain. It's all futile. We are most to be pitied of everybody if Christ has not been raised. Everything hangs on the resurrection. That's the nature of the sign we have received. Second thing is the exclusivity of the sign. We know what the sign is. According to verse 29, it's the only one that's coming. No sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. This is the only sign that God gives. And I hope you can appreciate what that means. It means that we should not expect to go to God and say, God, if you are there, prove yourself to me by doing X, Y, or Z. As much as we might want to do that and think that makes sense, God, if you're really there, heal my mother, heal my father. Yes, pray that prayer to heal my father, heal my mother, heal my daughter and son. We should not expect and cannot put God to the test by saying, if you do this, that will be my sign. We've been told in advance there's one sign for this generation. The physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The last thing I want to point out to you is the graciousness of the sign. This is the very end, verses 31 and 32. If this one sign that we have received is actually really, really gracious. Because you may be sitting there thinking this is really stingy of God to only do this one thing, this one thing that we didn't actually see with our own eyes. But I want to point out to you that this is actually really, really gracious. Why is that? Because we're reminded in the final verses of this passage that there were people in the past who got less from God in terms of signs, and they did more with it. They got less, and they did more. That reality was true for the queen of the south. You can read about her in 1 Kings 10. And it was also true for the people of Nineveh. They got less than us in terms of confirming signs, and yet they did more with it. 
That's why Jesus says they will rise up at the judgment and condemn those who have not believed in Jesus. The people of Nineveh repented and believed God on the basis of Jonah's preaching alone. They did not see Jonah come out of the fish. Nineveh is 400 miles inland. They repented. Notice what Jesus says, verse 32. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. Have you ever thought about why the people of Nineveh repented? They were Gentiles, brutal Gentiles. And this crazy, haggard Jewish man shows up in town, an enemy shows up in their city and starts preaching doom, and they believed him. And they repented and turned to God on the basis of his preaching alone. Why would they do that? That's why these men of Nineveh will rise up and condemn you at the judgment if you have not believed in Jesus because you got the sign. You not only heard Jesus preach, but you had the testimony of Christ raised from the dead and still did not believe. You got more from God than they did. They didn't have the sign of the physical resurrection of Jesus. And yet they still repented and believed. And that's why they will condemn you. No one will be able to stand before God and tell him, you should have done more. No one will be able to say to God, I did not believe in you or Jesus whom you sent, but it's not my fault. You should have done more to prove yourself. On the contrary, it is you who will hear, you should have done more. You who have not believed in Jesus, it is you who will hear, you should have done more. Not from God. God will not say those words to anyone. No one can do enough to please God. The Bible is clear about that. God will not condemn you with the words you should have done more. Those words will come to you from the Queen of the South. She moved heaven and earth. She came from the ends of the earth to see a human. She made all that effort just to get in the presence of Solomon, a mere human, and you did nothing with God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Something greater than Solomon is here, and he presents himself to you again today and invites you, follow me. Listen to the words of the people of Nineveh in the Queen of the South today. Hear them today. Don't wait until the day of judgment when it's too late. No one will be able to charge God on that day with not having done enough to convince them. No one will be able to charge God with being stingy with his evidences and signs. If you try to make that argument, if you... Make that argument to God. He will silently turn. And he will invite the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south to stand up and give their testimony, which you won't be able to deny, that they got less and did more 
than you got. You can't refute that. They'll say, you got more than we did. And we moved heaven and earth and we repented and believed based on the less that we got from God. And he was so gracious to give you that sign. And you didn't believe. See, it's not God who should have done more. It's you. And you might think, what is this, some kind of a threat? Like threatening me, preacher? There's God, is Jesus giving a threat here, like believe or else? No, this is what grace looks like because we've been told in advance and we've been told while there's time. We know what will be said at the judgment. And now his word to you is follow me. Gracious Father, we thank you for the graciousness of this sign that we don't deserve. Just to know that we're evil and deserve nothing good from you. And yet still, still after our evil heart says, God, one more sign, one more sign that so we can, so we can believe you. You grant to us the sign of Jonah You grant to us that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and that his disciples who were so fearful and so ready to give up, something changed, something happened, and they got back in the game and they went out and preached Jesus to the ends of the earth. Something happened. I pray that you would open blind eyes, that you would remove the veil and give us the gift of repentance and faith in the beautiful Jesus Christ. Amen.